Rumpelstiltskin always says that magic comes with a price. But for this price, you can get a nice piece of jewelry. Use code ONCEPOD for 10% off your first order at Unusual Magic Jewelry on Etsy. Click the link in the description. And welcome to the Once Again Podcast. We are your hosts, Ashley and Jason. In today's episode, we will be discussing the novel, A Game of Thrones, from Chapter 9, Tyrion 1, through Chapter 17, Bran 3. These are the corresponding book chapters to Episode 2 of Game of Thrones, The King's Road, with the exception of Daenerys' chapters, as they are more spread out in the books than in the show. We will attempt to keep spoilers to a minimum in this episode, However, Jason and I have already read all five published books in the Song of Ice and Fire series, so it is possible we may discuss some spoilers in covering the material. So let's kick things off with Chapter 9, Tyrion 1. Our point of view character is Tyrion Lannister, and the location is Winterfell. Tyrion has been reading all night in Winterfell's library when he hears a wolf howl. He gives up on reading, noticing that it is nearly dawn and Septon Chael is asleep. Tyrion wakes him and goes out to break his fast. As he leaves, Tyrion hears Sandor Clegane complaining about how long Bran Stark is taking to die. Prince Joffrey states that at least Bran is dying quietly, but the wolf's howling is disturbing his sleep. The hound offers to go and kill it, which Joffrey finds amusing, believing the Starks would not notice it missing. Tyrion notes that the Starks can count past six, unlike some princes. The Hound uses the remark as an excuse to make fun of Tyrion's height. Tyrion brushes the comments off before advising Joffrey to pay a visit to the Starks to offer his sympathies. When Joffrey asks what good it'll do, Tyrion tells him that his absence has already been noticed. Joffrey continues to refuse, but Tyrion proceeds to browbeat him to the edge of tears until the boy agrees. The Hound Looming over Tyrion, warns him that the prince will remember how his uncle slapped him. Tyrion responds that he hopes he does, and that the hound should be a good dog and remind him if Joffrey ever forgets. Tyrion then seeks out his brother and sister, who are having breakfast in the morning room of the guest house. He asks if King Robert is still in bed, and Cersei disdainfully explains that Robert has been up all night with Lord Eddard and has taken the stark sorrow deeply to heart. But, you know, it goes against what you were saying earlier in the uh, TV episode about you being like, Robert just wouldn't care if Joffrey didn't go give his, like, sympathies and condolences. But, like, you know, this can, says more so that Robert would, in fact, care. True. And I'm surprised hasn't slapped Joffrey himself at this point. Yeah, you're not wrong. Book Robert is a little bit different than show Robert, though, for like the- Book Robert is definitely a little bit more compassionate, yeah. especially towards Eddard. And slightly more of that, how do I want to say it? Like that regal type of person, like he cares about appearances slightly. Like he he, yeah. he knows what he's supposed to do, whereas show Robert just does what he wants to do. So when Jamie adds that Robert has a big heart, Tyrion remembers that during his childhood, Jamie was the only person who ever showed him any affection or respect. In return, Tyrion is willing to forgive Jamie for almost anything. 
As Tyrion orders his breakfast, Prince Tommen asks after Bran and says he doesn't want him to die. Jamie comments on the name Brandon being unlucky, but Tyrion states this may not be the case, explaining that Maester Lewin thinks that Bran may recover. As he speaks, Tyrion catches the significant glance between Jamie and Cersei. Cersei immediately insists that there is no mercy for Bran to live. When Marcella asks if Bran will be all right, Tyrion explains that Bran will never walk again. Tyrion goes on to say that the wolf howling outside his window may be contributing to Bran's survival. When the window is closed, Bran gets weaker, but his heart strengthens again when it is opened. Cersei responds that the wolves disturb her and are dangerous, but Jaime tells her that the girl's wolves will doubtlessly follow them to King's Landing. Tyrion then reveals to his family that he intends to visit the Wall before returning south. Jaime jokes that he hopes Tyrion is not planning to take the Black, but Tyrion quips back that if he did, the whores would go begging. Cersei leaves abruptly with her children, insisting they shouldn't hear such filth, while Jaime wonders if Eddard will leave Winterfell with Bran so ill. Tyrion insists that King Robert will make the choice for him. Jaime declares that if he were Eddard, he would end Bran's torment and save him from being a cripple. Tyrion himself, less than able-bodied, advises Jaime not to say as much to Eddard before wondering out loud what tale Bran might tell if he wakes up. Jaime is not amused and wonders aloud about Tyrion's loyalty. Tyrion replies that Jaime knows how much he loves his family. It's so fascinating because like even the show we get the kind of note that like Tyrion probably does know what happened ish but like here it's mm-hmm. like oh no he definitely knows that Jaime and Cersei had something to do with it. Yeah I mean Peter Dinklage did a great job but once again Tyrion book Tyrion and show Tyrion are different characters. They have a lot of similarities, but Book Tyrion is way smarter than show Tyrion and also more arrogant as well. Not really, but on the outside, he projects much more arrogance than show Tyrion does. So we move right along to chapter 10, John 2. Our point of view character is Jon Snow and the location is Winterfell. Jon climbs the stairs to Bran's room with Ghost beside him fearing that it might be the last time. Catelyn is there, having never left Bran's side for close to a fortnight, which has kept John away, but now there is no more time. When John enters, Catelyn responds with hostility, asking why he is here and demanding he leave. While once this would have sent him crying, now it only makes John angry, so that when Catelyn threatens to call the guards, he calls her bluff. John finds Bran emaciated and shrunken, and the covers over his legs look wrong. John asks Bran not to die and tells him everyone is waiting for him to wake up. John remembers how much Bran was looking forward to the journey south while explaining that he is going north to the wall with Uncle Benjen. Catelyn admits that she was wishing for Bran to stay home with her, and her wish seems to be granted. When John attempts to reassure her, she lashes out at him. And as he is leaving, tells him that it should have been him that fell. Also notably here, he says that this is the first time she has ever used his name. Mm-hmm. You're right. Which I wonder what she always, like, did she just call him Bastard or? She had to have talked to him. I assume Bastard and like you or boy, like. Yeah. 
but the, you know that's kind of cruel in of itself to think of this woman not calling a child by his name yeah agreed john makes the long walk to the yard where things are in an uproar as the party prepares to leave rob brings the news that benjamin is looking for john when rob asks about his mother john tells him that she was kind rob then remarks that the next time they meet john will be all in all black and they hug farewell next john goes to see aria who is repacking her things with help from Nymeria, not having folded them well enough for Septa Mordain the first time. John says that he has a secret present for her. After Arya closes the door and sets Nymeria to guard it, John gives her a small sword made specially for her, one like the swords from Bravos. He explains to her that she will have to practice every day, shows her how to hold it, and then gives her her first lesson, stick them with the pointy end. He then warns her not to tell Sansa. Arya runs to him for a, a last hug. Just before he leaves, John tells Arya that all the best swords have names. When she asks what her sword's name is, he explains that it's her favorite thing. And then they say it together. Needle. So this seems a little different from the show. It's, you know, it shows that they're closer than we think. Like yeah, we also see that John named it Needle, not Arya. Right. And I, it also reminded me when I was reading this scene, I remember uh, years ago learning about in a very early draft, Arya was going to be, Arya was the first name that he came up with, but I guess Arya was going to be older, like closer to Sansa's age, or maybe even older than Sansa. And the problem that Catelyn was going to have with John was that even though he's Ned Stark's bastard son, him and Arya were having an incestuous relationship. And that was going to be Catelyn's problem with John, which explains Cat like the hate. Which does it would explain a lot. I mean, obviously yeah. that's not ever like yeah. but fleshed it, it, out. But yeah, you just kind of get it's weird to say, but you do get that they're closer than the other siblings. Like obviously George R. R. Martin didn't go as far as having them having an incestuous relationship, but they are closer than the other siblings. But I will say too, is I think having any of the Starks have an incestuous relationship kind of ruined things for later when we, you know, especially because, you know, Jamie and Cersei, like other families do this. Yeah. The original. And we know that the Starks are kind of supposed to be much more traditional, powerful, like. Yeah by the books people that wouldn't really fit their vibe enough the original idea was very very different and way less complex i think than uh what it came out to be because his original idea was just going to make jamie lannister the overall villain and he was going to kill everyone he was going to kill robert joffrey cersei and send himself on the iron throne so like it was a much different idea than what we ended up getting and I like what we got a whole lot better. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So I do I do get the vibes from Jamie that, that that was once upon a time as a plan. Yeah. It does make sense. So moving into chapter 11, Daenerys 2. Our point of view character is Daenerys Targaryen, and the location is outside the walls of Pentos. While waiting for Daenerys' wedding, Illyrio Mopatis explains that Drogos Kalasar has 40,000 Dothraki warriors and their families and herds gathered outside the walls of Pentos, which have made the other magisters so uneasy that they have doubled the city guard. 
the Dothraki are eating everything in sight, and Illyrio thinks that it would be best to have the marriage as soon as possible. Sir Jorah Mormont offered and had been accepted into the service of Daenerys' brother, Viserys. Viserys is impatient for Drogo to help him regain his throne. Illyrio explains to him that the Khal must take his new bride to Vase Dothrak first, and then wait until the omens are favorable for war. Viserys complains of the delay, despite Illyrio and Jorah cautioning patience. That night, Daenerys dreams of Viserys chasing and beating her, saying, you woke the dragon. Then she turns to see a dragon in his place and wakes, shaking, with a fine sheen of sweat on her skin. Daenerys weds Khal Drogo under the open sky before 40,000 Dothraki warriors. The ceremonies begin at dawn and continue until dusk. Viserys, Illyrio, and Jorah are seated below Drogo and Daenerys at the feast, which grates on Viserys's pride, especially when the food is first served to Daenerys and Drogo before being offered to him. Daenerys with a foot, which, I mean, Viserys, you got to get over yourself. <laughs> like, like I understand his point, but like, it's your sister's wedding. Yeah. Shut up. Even, even if this was back at the Seven Kingdoms, like, let's say everything worked out and the Targaryens didn't fall. Um, and Daenerys- He's not always going to be first. Right. And Daenerys was marrying somebody else. He And he was the king, let's say. He, he would still not always be first. You're right. Daenerys, with a forced smile, her brother told her she should wear, eats little since her stomach is upset. She is seated only with her new husband, and they do not even share a common language, so there is nothing for her to do. Early on in the day, she sees Dothraki men taking dancing women and mounting them in the open like animals. When two men grab the same woman, a fight to the death ensues. The survivor then takes another woman. Illyrio has told her that a Dothraki wedding without at least three deaths is considered a dull affair. By the end of the day, a dozen men have died, obviously making it an exceptional wedding. It's a good wedding with so many deaths. Oh, yeah. I hope to have the same at my wedding. (laughs) (laughs) Could you, I mean, honestly, could you imagine like this going on? I don't mean to be offensive to a different culture or whatever, but like, could you imagine like if in 2021 you went to a wedding and there were just people having sex, like right, (laughs) right in front of everyone and like disemboweling each other and every like could you imagine seeing that and it's just being like yeah this is just part of the ceremony i could imagine a vegas wedding with a lot of sex not gonna lie but uh not so much the killing yeah yeah three you know um or it's only three in the show a a dozen men in the books like you know no (laughs) like that that wouldn't happen Daenerys is consumed by the fear of her hulking husband with a stern, cruel face and a culture that is so different and of her brother if she should fail him. As the sun sets, Daenerys receives her bride gifts. Viserys gives her three handmaids that cost him nothing, picked to teach her what she needs to know. Eri to teach her how to ride, Jinqui to teach her the Dothraki language, and Dorea to teach her the arts of love. Sir Jorah, with an apology since it was all he could afford, gives her a stack of old books in the common tongue, and she thanks him with all her heart. 
Illyrio gives her fine silks and fabrics and three huge dragon eggs. One is green, one is cream colored, and one is black with scarlet ripples and swirls. Illyrio tells her that they have turned to stone over the years. Cal Drogo's blood riders give her the traditional three weapons, which she refuses with the traditional refusals and then passes to her husband. Many other gifts have come from other Dothraki. Last of all, Drogo brings forth his own bride gift, a fine gray filly. Drogo easily lifts her by the waist up to the saddle. She doesn't know what to do. Sir Jorah tells her to take the reins and ride. She is only a fair rider, having traveled almost exclusively by other means, but as she rides, she forgets her fears and eventually sends the horse into a gallop and even has it leap over a fire pit. She returns and tells Illyrio to tell her husband that he has given her the wind, and Drogo smiles. Then the sun sets, and Drogo readies his horse. When Viserys warns her to please her husband, lest she will regret it, fear comes back to her. Drogo sets a fast pace, saying nothing. Daenerys rides to rid herself of her fear by remembering she is the blood of the dragon, and the dragon is never afraid. It is dark when they stop at a grassy place beside a small stream. Drogo swings off his horse and lifts her down from hers. Daenerys feels fragile in her wedding silks. She begins to weep, but Drogo says no and wipes away her tears. She asks questions, but all Drogo can say is no. Then he starts softly murmuring to her in Dothraki to soothe her. Drogo sets her down on a rock and sits facing her. And then he starts removing the bells from his hair, and Daenerys helps. Then he indicates that she should unbraid his hair, which takes a long time. Then Drogo undresses her with tenderness and caresses her until she is ready for him. When he bares her breasts, she covers, her, she covers herself with her hands, but Drogo gently pulls her hands away. After he finishes undressing her, he watches her for a while, then begins to touch her face and hair. It seems like hours to Daenerys before his hands go to her breasts. This makes Daenerys breathless, and when he sits her on his lap and asks no, she moves his hand inside her and says yes. And that is a much different scene. Yeah, yeah, it's much more rapey in the TV show. Which I don't even know why it has to be that way in the TV TV show considering like it works so much better for their relationship you know that agreed this is how it starts out like it's much more romantic like she actually likes Drogo to be fair like yeah he's not like just taking quote-unquote his right as as her husband like he's showing her that he wants to care for her and everything and it's not even because we haven't addressed this yet in, the t- yet in the TV show episodes, but there's a couple episodes coming up that in my research for them had scenes added because the original cut of the episode was too short. So you can't even argue that like, oh, it was a time constraint. We made the story simpler. Like, no, they had time to do what they wanted with the character. And then they chose to have Daenerys and Drogo's relationship start off the way that it did. Luckily, it, it changes. And 
Drogo's p- played by Jason Momoa, so you like him, but but like yeah, it it started off very differently. Because I think if they just started it off like this, like that's what gives her her confidence anyway, is the fact that this man is treating her so kindly, and now mm-hmm. she's married to him, and like she's finding herself through this marriage and through through her own power as Elise. Yeah. Well, plus two. Yeah, I'm assuming if you've if you're listening to this podcast, you've watched the show or read the books, but so spoiler, but um, Drogo's not long for this world. And there's a lot of theories floating around about why he wanted to marry Daenerys, which we never really get the answers to, but it has something to do with her um, Valyrian blood. And, yeah, definitely. And so he wouldn't like treat her like this, this thing that he owns, he would treat her with respect and, you know, tenderness and everything. So it's, it's Do you think a- we'll ever actually get an answer like from something or someone down the line as to why he specifically wanted to marry somebody of Valyrian blood? Like possibly, I is mean, it possible we get that somewhere there. I, I would guess what could happen is that there's going to be other Dothraki that theorize it. And one of them might have the right answer. Like we won't, obviously we're not, well, I shouldn't say we're not going to get Drogo again because maybe she'll have a vision of him or something and that'll be the truth. But yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think we will get an answer as to why. I, obviously she's beautiful, but it, there was more to it than it just that. It has to be more to that because yeah. they specifically mentioned Valyrian blood. Like I know that's something Illyrio mentioned. Like, oh, he'll like your sister. You want to show her Valyrian features. Like, right. Yeah, because Drogo could literally have any woman that he wants. He's a Dothraki. It's definitely more common for the Dothraki to take their own people and Mm -hmm. take slaves more so than take a wife like this. Mm -hmm. That's right. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 12, Eddard 2. Our point of view character is Eddard Stark, and the location is the Barrowlands between Winterfell and Moat Caelan. Ned is woken before dawn to find his horse saddled and King Robert waiting. When the king claims to have urgent matters of of state to discuss, Ned invites him to come inside. Robert refuses, claiming that the camp is full of ears, so Ned dresses and mounts up. Robert sets a hard pace, and soon the pair leave the king's road to ride through the Barrowlands. They do not stop until until dawn, miles south of the main party. Exhausted by the ride, Robert complains of the glacier pace of Cersei's wheelhouse and jokingly suggests that he and Ned run off to live as vagabond knights. Ned laughs and reminds Robert of their duties and that they are no longer the boys that they once were. Robert jokes that Ned was never the boy that he once was and then tries to recall the name of the woman that Ned fathered with Jon Snow. Ned provides the name Wyla, but coldly refuses to say more about her. Do you want to discuss this now, or should we wait until the end of the episode? I think we should just talk about it now. Okay. So, again, spoilers, but Wyla is the name of the wet nurse that Ned came back from Starfall with when he came back with Jon Snow. Yeah. If you don't know what a wet nurse is, it's basically a woman who either has children or was going to have children and lost them. And she provides her milk to people who need like ba- babies who need milk. Yeah. But yeah, that was the name of the wet nurse. So 
It's a name that he could think of and associate with Wyla. And some people do theorize that Wyla was John's mother, but I don't personally. I know you don't. I th- I know that I definitely think that's just a name that he's like, we're just going to pull this name mm-hmm. because it's based off an actual person. There's some logic as to why it would be her. Yeah. And it's something people won't necessarily question. Mm-hmm. Especially Robert. Question it a little. Yeah. But moving right along, Robert finally gets to the business at hand. A message from the eunuch Barris, his master of whispers in King's Landing. Ned reads the message with some trepidation, thinking of Liza Aaron and her terrible accusation, but finds that it concerns the wedding of Daenerys Targaryen to Khal Drogo. When Robert explains that the information has come from Sir Jorah Mormont, Ned takes offense, recalling Mormont as a fugitive who fled the king's justice after selling poachers to a Tyroshi slave in defiance of the law. The news of the wedding does not worry Ned, but when Robert angrily suggests an assassination attempt, he is not surprised. Since the days of the rebellion, Robert has held a hatred for the Targaryens that seems a madness to Ned. Ned recalls that the angry words that passed between Robert and himself when Tywin Lannister presented Robert with the corpses of Rhaegar Targaryen's wife, Elia, and her children, Aegon and Rhaenys, as tokens of fealty. Ned called it murder, but Robert called it war. It took the death of Lyanna to reconcile them. So that's interesting. I mean, we do know that he rides to the Tower of Joy after the sack of King's Landing, but it, yeah. isn't, it is interesting that there was this much of a tear between them for so long, because I think it was two weeks in between the sack of King's Landing and when Ned reached the Tower of Joy, where Lyanna was. Yeah, I just think, you know, again, people in this universe do not like children. No, it, it you know, it, it's so, I mean, Tywin didn't have to go as far as he did. He didn't have to kill Rhaegar and, or Rhaegar. He didn't have to kill Aegon and uh, Rhaenys. They could have been hostages or whatever you want to say. But... Also, doing that would have made Dorn less hostile too. Oh, Definitely. They would have been upset over Elia, but like they wouldn't be as upset as they currently are. Yeah. Well, you know, he didn't have to have Elia. Uh, we'll get into it when we get to it. But Elia's death was one thing, but the children afterwards was a completely different matter. And we will discuss that when it comes up, I guess. But yeah, yeah, it is interesting. This time, Ned keeps his temper telling Robert that he is no Tywin Lannister to slaughter innocents. Robert angrily insists that Daenerys will not remain innocent forever and will soon breed more dragonspawn to plague him. When Ned reiterates that killing a child would be unspeakable, Robert responds what Ares did to Ned's father and brother and what Rhaegar did to Lyanna were unspeakable. When Robert mentions that Drogo has 100,000 men in his horde, Ned insists that even a million Dothraki are no threat to the realm without ships. Robert replies that ships can be found in the free cities and that many in the Seven Kingdoms, particularly in Dorne and the Reach, would not hesitate to join a Targaryen invasion, which is something we were briefly Hmm. just discussing. I wonder why. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe don't kill children. Yeah. 
And despite this, Ned remains convinced that they would be able to drive the, the Dothraki back, emphasizing the importance of appointing a new warden of the East. When Robert refuses to appoint John Aaron's son, Robert, just in case anyone's confusing, John Aaron's son is also named Robert, Ned suggests the king's own brother, Stannis, which I think is a, actually a pretty good suggestion. You know, Stannis is out, out there in Dragonstone. He's already in the East, you know? Especially like, like Stannis, that man deserves an appointment. Like we'll learn yeah. later. Like that I, man's been working hard and he should have something probably. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as a military commander, he's like the best or second yeah, best in perfect. all of Westeros. Yeah. Perfect option. Yeah. When Robert continues to be evasive, Ned quickly deduces that he has already promised the office to Jamie Lannister. Ned reminds Robert that Jamie already stands to succeed Tywin Lannister as Warden of the West, and that as Warden of both East and West, Jamie would control half of all the realm's armies. Which I don't understand, like, not to keep interrupting, recounting this, but like, Jamie's a Kingsguard knight. Like yes. he's he's not he's not going to inherit the title of Warden of the West, like that's going to go to Tyrion. What like why even give him Warden of the East anyway? Because like, as a Kingsguard, shouldn't he be uneligible at this yeah. point? Like, yeah, I don't I don't I don't understand it. Like he would have to, nah, eh, whatever. Moving on, Ned asks whether Jamie can be trusted. When Robert asks why he shouldn't trust Jamie, Ned reminds him that. Jamie betrayed and killed the last king he was sworn to protect. To illustrate his point about Jamie Lannister, Ned describes to Robert how, after the Battle of the Trident, he followed Rhaegar's armies back to King's Landing to find the city sacked by the Lannisters. Ned goes on to explain that upon entering the throne room, he found King Aerys dead on the floor and Jamie sitting on the Iron Throne. Although Jamie eventually rose to say that he was only keeping the uncomfortable thing warm for Robert, Ned insists that Jamie had no right to sit on the throne. Robert finds this amusing and does not consider Jamie's great sin to be that bad. He gallops off, but Ned pauses, despairing of ever keeping Robert from making mistakes. He still believes that he should be in Winterfell with his wife and Bran, Finally, resigned to not being able to be where he belongs, Ned follows his king. So moving right along, we get to chapter 13, Tyrion 2. Our point of view character is Tyrion Lannister, and the location is north of Winterfell on the way to Castle Black. After a fortnight riding north from Winterfell with Benjen Stark, Jon Snow, and two of his own retainers, Tyrion is amazed by the enormous size of the north. Although he knows the maps of the region as well as anyone, the land itself is quite another thing. It has grown colder, quieter, and far lonelier further north they have gone, and the King's Road has narrowed down to a wild track. Three days out of Winterfell, the farmland has given way to a dense, dark forest of the Wolf's Wood. There they meet up with Yorin, a brother of the Night's Watch, accompanied by two peasant boys condemned to join the Night's Watch. That night, Tyrion notices John looking at their new companions with dismay and feels sorry for the boy who has had such a hard life chosen for him. Tyrion feels less sympathy for Benjen Stark, who apparently shares his brother's distaste for Lannisters, 
and seems intent on making Tyrion's journey north as uncomfortable as possible. However, Tyrion does take a small bit of revenge when he accepts a tattered old bearskin cloak from Benjen, a gift Tyrion thinks Benjen did not expect him to accept and is probably regretting. I, I found that part pretty humorous, like Benjen offering because he sees Tyrion's cold and he's like, oh, do you want this, uh, you know, bearskin yeah. cloak to keep? And, and Tyrion was like, of course I'll say yes. Oh, I yeah. want to be warm. Yeah, thank you. And then Benjen's just like, oh, I was going to use that. But by the 18th night of their journey, the inns and settlements had long since disappeared, forcing the party to make camp. Being too small to help, Tyrion, as is his custom, goes away from the camp with a book about dragons, one of several he brought with him from Winterfell. Tyrion has always been interested in dragons. He remembers seeking out the dragon skulls in King's Landing the first time he was there. He recalls having a torch with him when he discovered the skulls and having the sensation that they seemed to like it when he touched the torch to them. There were three skulls much larger than the others, and one of the skulls could have swallowed a mammoth whole. Tyrion recalls that King Lorin I, an ancestor of the Lannisters, had been about to defeat Aegon Targaryen in the battle when the Targaryens unleashed all three of their dragons and made short work of their opponents. As Tyrion reads, he is approached by Jon Snow, who asks him why he reads so much. Tyrion explains that because his body is twisted and weak, he must rely on his mind, and a mind needs books like a sword needs a wet stone. When John asks what Tyrion is reading, Tyrion begins to explain about dragons and how he fantasized about them as a child when feeling resentful towards his family. When Tyrion goes so far as to suggest that John must feel resentment towards his own family, John protests. However, Tyrion continues to push the issue, sarcastically describing how Lady Catelyn treats him as one of her own how Rob is kind because he is the heir, and how Eddard must have had a good reason to pack John off to the wall. When John replies that the, that the Night's Watch is a noble calling, Tyrion describes the watch as a midden heap for the realm's debtors, poachers, rapers, thieves, and bastards, all kept busy watching for imaginary grumpkins and snarks. Which I wonder if the grumpkins and snarks really do exist. Yeah, they get mentioned a lot. But... Yeah. When John asks him to stop, Tyrion realizes what he has been saying and feels badly. Reaching out to comfort John, he is attacked and knocked down by John's dire wolf ghost. Unable to get up on his own, Tyrion is forced to apologize to John before receiving help. When Tyrion questions why the wolf attacked, John jokes that ghost must have mistaken Tyrion for a grumpkin, which amuses them both. Having calmed down, John asks Tyrion if the things he said of the Night's Watch were true. When Tyrion says yes, John accepts the truth grimly. The two share some wine and return to the camp for a supper of squirrel stew. Tyrion is the last to retire, and John has the watch. So this scene's different than uh, in the show. It's much longer. Yeah, it also it really gives us uh, Tyrion and John kind of having a friendship building mm -hmm. slowly. Agreed. Especially I'll... in that they're both kind of the unwanted person in their families. Yeah. We also get a lot of talk of dragons here. Yes. Which for some fans, just must really make them...
when they hear it because it's these two characters that people like to theorize are both Targaryens. But let's move on. Chapter 14, Catelyn 3. Our point of view character is Catelyn Tully, and the location is Winterfell. Eight days after Eddard and the others have left Winterfell, Catelyn is still sitting at Bran's bedside in her fragile mental state. Maester Lewin comes to tell how much the king's visit has cost them, but Catelyn is not interested in looking at figures. Regardless, the maester continues to speak of replacing provisions. Catelyn insists that the steward can worry about such matters. Lewin reminds her that Vanyan Poole went south with Lord Eddard and needs to be replaced, along with a number of other positions. Catelyn is outraged that he can think of such trivial things when Bran is dying until Rob arrives to take charge of the appointments. I do want to say, because as they're like listing everything that needs to be replaced, Eddard took everyone pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Like he left no one. He was like, yeah, our son is dying in bed. Uh, I'm going to leave you with the kids that are left and mm. Maester Lewin and like a handful of other people like old man and, and Hodar. Okay. And so a great, and a great joy. Yeah. You don't need, yeah, you don't need anybody else. Bye. It is so weird that he took all these people when he's going to King's Landing. Like, it's not like there aren't people there already and he couldn't hire someone. If Like, I understand taking his guards and whatnot like that. I think I understand, like, I understand taking, like, the main core people that you need. Like, mm. yeah, he needs his, like, guards and stuff, but surely you'd be better off finding, like, other positions in King's Landing with people who know King's Landing. Agreed. Yeah. And it might be a matter that he doesn't trust. Like, why would you want your like head of household type of person to be from the North? Wouldn't it make more sense to pull someone from the South? Like, I guess you'd have to worry about them being a spy then, but right. like. that That's the only thing that I could figure. But I, I don't but know. No, he took everyone. Like, yeah. it's not even like, oh, it's like, no, he took this person. Oh, he took this person. Oh, he took that Did, person. Like, didn't he even take like the guy in charge of the horses, if I remember yes, correctly. Yes, he like, did. It's, he it's... took, yes, like he took everyone, which yeah. is why, which is when I was like, oh my God, this man just took everyone and left Catelyn with nobody and was like, yeah, you're having trouble with your bereavement right now. Um, I'm going to take past the household by. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, oh, you know what? Like, he was probably just like, you know what? Uh, if you need anything, just ask those nice Boltons that live only a couple miles away. They're they're very trustworthy. Ask <laughs> yeah. the Boltons. Yeah, they, spoilers. They'll help, they'll help you out with anything. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I don't I don't understand what Ned was thinking. I mean, as we've said before, Ned's dumb. Like he just is dumb. Like he's not a moron, but he's dumb. Yeah, like, yeah. He, he really only left the family with, like, maybe, like, three or four, like, useful and trustworthy people, because most of the people he left are not useful. Yeah, and, and the most surprising thing is that he left Theon. Theon's his ward. Like, it's, like, he's Yeah, I don't a, get why he left Theon. Yeah. Theon should have gone with him. Yeah, he's But I guess, like, the concern there is, would he even be welcome in King's Landing because he's a Greyjoy? Like, I assume that might have some issues. yeah. I guess. Because everybody else doesn't like that he has Theon, so. Right. Agreed. But I, he's Hand of the King. He's the second most powerful man in the kingdom if he says this is what I want. Well, we know the real reason. Well, we that, already had this conversation about John that, like, he could have yeah. just brought John and had John do something else besides be his son. And the fact that that was, like, not something that they somehow tried to figure out, like. Yeah. 
Like, there's no reason John needed to go take the black. Like, yeah. Well, uh, the reason is is because George wanted them to. The characters are where they yeah. are because George wanted them to be that but way. But there's no actual, like... In-world reason. Like, in-world yeah. reason, Ned's the hand of the king. He could have found something for John to do. Right. Yeah. Any, and I th- I would think in-world, he would take Theon with them as well. Even if people didn't want a Greyjoy there, he would take them. Oh, well. After the maester leaves, Rob asks Catelyn what she thinks she is doing, spending all of her time with Bran and not even saying farewell to her own family. Catelyn insists that she can't bear to be away from Bran in case he should die. Rob ensures her that Bran is not going to die and reminds her that the other children need her too. He goes on to explain that Rickon just follows him around all day crying, thinking everyone has abandoned him. Like, poor little Rickon. Yeah, like I said, Rickon's like three. Yeah. How are you leaving your three-year-olds? And everybody else, like like I said, everybody else left or was taken with Ned along the way. So Rickon's got nobody. Maybe maybe Catelyn's like, uh, Wyla would take care of him. <laughs> maybe Wyla's still around. Uh, but, but anyway, Rob hears a dire wolf howling outside and opens the window, explaining the sounds seem to be good for Bran. When the other wolves join in, Catelyn screams for Rob to make the noise stop and then collapses to the floor. Rob helps her up, but she only begins screaming again. Then Rob notices the dogs barking as well and sees the library tower afire. When Rob rushes off to fight the fire, Catelyn remains behind with Bran. When she turns away from the window, however, she is face to face with a filthy man brandishing a knife. The man claims that Catelyn is not supposed to be there and moves towards Bran, claiming that killing him would be a mercy. Catelyn attempts to scream for help, but the man is too quick as he moves to slit her throat. Catelyn manages to grab the blade with her hands and push it away, cutting her fingers badly. She bites the man's hands and fights her way free. The man is about to attack her again when Bran's dire wolf leaps onto him and rips out his throat. Once the man is dead, the wolf settles down on Bran's bed. Catelyn is taken back to her chambers. Old Nan undresses her and helps her into a bath. After the bath, Maester Lewin dresses Catelyn's wounds. Her fingers are cut almost to the bone, and the man has pulled out a handful of hair. The maester gives her milk of the poppy, which puts her to sleep. She wakes up four days later. It seems like a nightmare, but the pain in her hands reminds her that it was real. When Catelyn remembers her behavior since Bran's fall, she is ashamed, promising herself that it will not happen again. So right here is a key difference between the show and the books. This is where Catelyn decides, okay, I'm not going to be by Bran's bed all the time and everything. I have to start doing stuff. But yeah, we didn't get that in the show. Rob, now wearing armor and a sword, comes to see her with Theon Greyjoy, Sir Roderick, and Hollis Mullen, the new captain of the guard. Hall tells her that nobody knows who the man was, and he had likely been lurking in the stables since the king's visit. Where the man had been hiding, they found 90 silver stags hidden under the straw. When Rob asks why anybody would want to kill Bran, Catelyn insists that as a lord, he must learn to answer his own questions. Rob guesses that someone is afraid of what Bran might do or say if he wakes up, so he posts a heavy guard on Bran. 
Roderick points out that the dagger used by the assassin, a Valerian steel blade with a dragon bone handle, is a much finer weapon than anything a low-born footpad should have possessed. Someone must have given it to him. Catelyn then tells Roderick, Theon, and Rob, in strict confidence, of her sister Liza's suspicions about the death of John Aaron. She reminds them that Jamie Lannister did not go hunting with the others the day that Bran fell, and that she does not believe that Bran fell but was pushed. The group admits that that is a reasonable conclusion. However, Maester Lewin points out that all they have is conjecture, and that they must have proof or else keep silent. After some deliberation, Catelyn decides that she and Roderick will go to King's Landing by ship to inform Eddard, hopefully arriving ahead of the King's party. So we get more here in the book than we do in the show. Yeah, we do. Also, I like that they're like, yeah, Jamie and Lannister did not go hunting. Like, Yeah, that's a deep. They do take note of like, oh, that is weird. Especially since he's Kingsguard, he should be with the king. With Robert, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Especially because none of the other Kingsguard, as far as we know, are there as well, right? Like, Yeah, I can't think of it. I mean, there had to have been other ones. We don't hear about any of the other ones being there, but. Yeah. Barristan's not there. Yeah, Barristan's not there, obviously. I'm trying to think of who the other members of the Kingsguard are at this time, because they change so much in the books. Um, Yeah. I assume at least one of the others is there, but. Yeah. But yeah, like we were saying, we get more here than we do in the show, which, you know, we're not necessarily criticizing the show because they do only have a certain amount of time that they can put things on. But in our episode covering the show about this, we did criticize their their portrayal of the how the relationship between Daenerys and Drogo started. Yeah. No, I do think you have to compare because I think at the end of the day, the show does a very good job of staying as true to the books as possible. But I also think you miss a lot of context a lot of the time. Right. That I don't think they necessarily had to cut out. Agreed. They could have had a scene with Catelyn coming to the realization of how she's been behaving and everything. They just didn't put it in there. No, they didn't. Also, I don't even think in the show that they mention that they're traveling by ship specifically. <clears throat> they don't. In fact, they go they go on land, which is like yeah, how did, which how doesn't make any there? sense. Yeah, how did they get? Like, I guess two people could ride faster than three hundred or whatever, but even still, the, the well, they imply that they're like going to ride through, be cutting through the woods, so they're not going to be taking the king's road, so they're not going to go the long way, basically. But I'm yeah, like, still, the party has like two weeks ahead of you. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, oh, well. Like, if they had left literally at least a day or two after, I'd believe it. Yeah. Where I think being like, oh, they rode really hard, and then they got on a ship to beat them, like, that I can, like, believe mm-hmm. is possible. Agreed. So, moving along, we get to chapter 15, Sansa 1, which uh, I feel like I should admit right now, Sansa is my least favorite POV character in the books. Um, I, think I don't know. She's everyone's least favorite POV, to be honest. Okay. Especially, I feel like for a while, the, the later you get into the series, you're just like, oh, God, we have another Sansa chapter. Yeah. Like, I literally, like, when I, yeah, I need some vodka to deal with this. This isn't a good time. When I was reading the books, I'd be like, okay, who's the chapter after Sansa? Tyrion? Okay, let's get through the Sansa chapter so I can get to Tyrion or whoever, John, whoever it was. Yeah. 
she just she's not a fun person to read from her perspective because she's not the greatest person herself no she also doesn't have a lot going on story-wise at a lot of points so like she has tedious it's very tedious yeah a lot of her chapters because it's like oh we're just listening to songs to be a lady yep she has her mother's looks and her father's brains um so let's move right along Chapter 15, Sansa 1, our point of view character is Sansa Stark, and the location is the inn at the crossroads near the Ruby Ford. Sansa is having breakfast with Septa Mordain in an inn near the Trident. When Sansa feeds her dire wolf lady under the table, the Septa says that although Sansa is a good girl, she is as willful as her sister Arya when it comes to her dire wolf. The Septa informs Sansa that they have been invited to ride in the wheelhouse with Queen Cersei and Princess Marcella. Sansa has been looking forward to this for a week, hoping for a chance to be with Prince Joffrey. Which is something I didn't think about. Poor Septa Mordain. Like, she already had to deal with how rambunctious Arya is, but now both girls have dire wolves. Like, it's like, oh. Yeah, Septa Mordain is like, you Ned Stark. (laughs) Like, you for letting them have these wolves yeah because i I mean like a wolf alone is terrifying dire wolves are twice or three times the size of normal wolves which they actually did exist at one point in the real in the real world they went extinct because they were so large or whatever and their food supply ran out but like (laughs) i I couldn't imagine because by now they're probably well they're probably the size of dogs right about now like yeah. a large dog, but you know, perceptive Mordain. They're probably like German Shepherd Husky size, though. You know, they're yeah. not like agreed. They're big dog size, not baby dog size. All right, right. So Joffrey is everything she wanted her prince to be like: tall and strong and handsome. Which the one thing that I do. <laughs> Ashley was making a vomiting face. Gagging face. Yeah, gagging face. Sorry. The one thing that I do like about Sansa's chapters is how she views Joffrey up till the end of this book versus how she views Joffrey. I, I mean, physical descriptions of Joffrey versus how she views him after this book. Like, it's everything that she liked about him becomes a negative afterwards. I'm thinking about his lips specifically, like the way that she describes his lips. He's so strong and handsome. Yeah. The one thing Sansa is afraid of is that Arya will ruin everything for her. Septa Mordain wants Sansa and Arya to dress well for the event, and Sansa has already decided on a fine silk dress. She does not expect Arya to wear anything appropriate. Sansa begs to be excused so she can look for Arya. Sansa finds Arya on the banks of the Trident, trying to comb the mud out of her dire wolf Nymeria's fur. Arya is not interested in riding in the wheelhouse and intends to go riding with Micah to look for rubies in the river. Just to give a little backstory to that, because it's not in the summary, during Robert's Rebellion, he fought Rhaegar Targaryen at this location, and Rhaegar's uh, chest piece was inladen with rubies. And when Robert killed Rhaegar, he hit his chest piece so hard that all the rubies popped out of it. And so, yeah, people look for Rhaegar's lost rubies in this river. 
and it's just one of the stories that obviously Arya heard about as a child. Makes sense. Yeah, it's not in my summary, so I just felt like I should throw that context in there because it's not a spoiler that Robert kills Rhaegar. We know this. Um, Yes. Sansa insists that there is no fun in riding because there is nothing to see, but Arya is fascinated by all the new flowers and landmarks and people they are seeing along the way. Sansa informs Arya that she has to come, asking why anyone would want to ride a stinky horse when they could ride in the wheelhouse on pillows while eating lemon cakes and keeping company with the queen. All I'm saying is I agree with Sansa on the lemon cakes. Like, Fair enough. I don't want to be riding the horse. I want to be inside eating lemon cakes. Tell you what, I wouldn't mind spending some time in the wheelhouse with Cersei. Um... If she would even give you the time of day, you're not oh, Jamie Lannister. No, sorry. You're, yeah, I'm not Jamie Lannister. I'm not, uh, no, I can't remember their names. It's fine. Um, but, I, I, and, you know, obviously I would be a peasant in the Game of Thrones world, so Cersei would have nothing to do with me. That being said, wouldn't mind spending some time with her in a wheelhouse. Um, but Arya replies that she does not even like the queen and still intends to go riding. Sansa, giving up, leaves, but Arya yells after her that Lady will not be allowed in the wheelhouse, which leaves Sansa speechless. When they near the camp, Sansa sees a crowd gathered around the wheelhouse. The council has sent an honor guard from King's Landing to accompany them the rest of the way. The party includes two knights in fine armor, a strong old man in white armor, and a beautiful young man in green armor. There is also a gaunt, grim-faced man that Sansa finds so terrifying that she backs right into Sandor Clegane. Sansa kneels and hugs Lady, and the next thing she knows, the two new arrivals are standing above her. Joffrey explains that the terrifying man is Sir Illyn Payne, the royal executioner known as the King's Justice. The White Knight then introduces himself as Sir Barristan Selmy, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, but the Green Knight insists that she guess. Based on his age and his antlered helm, Sansa correctly deduces him to be the King's younger brother, Lord Renly Baratheon. Feeling more comfortable, Sansa apologizes to Sir Illyn Payne, but the man does not speak. Once he has left, Joffrey explains that his tongue was ripped out by Mad King Ares. The queen says that she must speak with her counselors and therefore must postpone the day with Marcella. Instead, she asks Joffrey to entertain their guests. Sansa is overjoyed with the idea of a whole day with Joffrey. Yet again. What a lucky girl. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong for these two? Also, you didn't have it written, but uh, Renly and Barristan are actually kind of terrified of the wolves. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I forgot Which to just put- goes to show you that they must be huge by this point mm-hmm. and that they're like, do we need to kill these wolves? Like, why are there just wolves chilling here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Sansa offers to do whatever the prince wants. And when Joffrey suggests that they go riding, Sansa gushes over that she loves riding. Yeah. Sure you do, girl. Yep. You weren't just complaining to Arya about how disgusting it is or anything. You know, what is she, 12 years old? I got to give her a break. (laughs) The love of her life wants to go riding. So, of course, she loves riding. It's her first crush. You know, all right. (sighs) 
Joffrey then suggests that it would be best to leave Lady and his dog, Sandor Clegane, behind. When Sansa questions leaving Clegane behind, Joffrey uh, brandishes his sword, Lion's Tooth. (laughs) What a name. Yeah. They ride along the river, exploring the countryside, until they draw near to the battlefield where King Robert defeated Rhaegar Targaryen. Then they hear an odd sound, like wood clattering, coming from nearby. In a nearby clearing, they find a boy and a girl play fighting with sticks. The boy, taller and older than the girl, is winning. When the girl is dismayed by a smack on the hand, Sansa recognizes her as Arya. Joffrey laughs, and the boy, a butcher's boy named Micah, drops his stick. Joffrey begins to taunt Micah and challenges him to a fight sword against stick. Micah insists that Arya asked him to fight her, which Sansa quickly realizes is the truth. Joffrey remains oblivious, however, and goes so far as to prick the boy's cheek with his sword. Arya picks up her stick and tells Joffrey to leave Micah alone. Joffrey insists that he will not hurt Micah much. Without warning, Arya breaks her stick over the back of Joffrey's head. Micah runs away while an enraged Joffrey staggers, but manages to catch a second blow from Arya on his sword, knocking the splintered stick from her hand. Ignoring Sansa's screams for them to stop, Arya throws a rock and hits Joffrey's horse, driving it away. Joffrey chases Arya with his sword until she is backed up against a tree. Suddenly, Nymeria appears, savaging Joffrey's sword arm and forcing him to drop his sword. Arya calls Nymeria off and picks up Lion's Tooth, while Joffrey lies whimpering on the ground. The prince pleads to Arya not to hurt him. Arya throws the sword into the river before running off with Nymeria. Once Arya is gone, Sansa goes to help Joffrey tenderly, but he snarls at her to leave and not to touch him, and Sansa can see the contempt in his eyes. My prince, my poor prince. Prince already hates you. Yeah, I forget because I don't remember, but Lion's Tooth is a Valerian steel sword because the Lannisters don't have a Valerian steel. No, it's not. It's just, um, it's not even like really supposed to be a name sword. I think like literally Joffrey just named it for Mm. funsies. Yeah. I think Renly actually like taunts the fact that like he named it Lion's Tooth. I think think somebody taunts him about it. Yeah. And that seems like a Renly thing to do. either like Renly or Tyrion because I believe either one of them would yeah it, one of his uncles being like really Joffrey yeah so it was either his uncle or his uncle <laughs> but one of them well you know as far him. as he knows yeah. Renly is also his uncle so yeah yeah what it, as far as we know Renly is his uncle as well <laughs> true uh, no but this scene very similar to the show they did pretty much a one-to-one adaptation of it yeah so let's move into chapter 16 eddard 3 our point of view character is eddard stark and the location is castle dairy the seat of house dairy in the riverlands after four days of searching varian pool comes to ned with news that Arya has been found unharmed ned is relieved that it was jory cassell who found her rather than the queen cersei's men Unfortunately, the Lannister guards at the gate informed the queen who had Arya brought directly before King Robert, which uh, the show kind of makes you seem like it's like that night 
but in the books it's four days later like yeah Arya did a good job of like hiding out yeah and surviving in the wilderness for four days i mean she did have her dire wolf with her but oh yeah. and oh we find out that there was someone else with her later too if i remember correctly but we could skip that for right now um yeah. Ned rushes to the audience chamber of nearby Castle Derry, which has been hosting the king's party during the search. He is dismayed to find the chamber full of people, preventing a private and amicable solution. Ned notes that very few in the crowd are likely to be sympathetic to the Starks. Most are either Lannister men or loyal to the local lord, Raymond Derry a prominent Targaryen loyalist who lost his family and fortune at the Trident. However, Ned is relieved that neither Jaime Lannister nor Sandor Clegane are present. I guess he thinks a fight's going to break out and he's happy they're yeah. not there. <laughs> like, Arya, which I wouldn't want them to be there either um, if, if a fight was going down. Yeah, and but I also was, like, would a fight go down? No, but Arya apologizes to Ned profusely as she cries ned turns angrily to the king demanding to know why Arya was not brought to him first queen cersei bristles at his tone but robert apologizes explaining that he only wanted to finish the business quickly cersei then accuses Arya and micah of ambushing joffrey with clubs while setting nymeria to tear off his arm when joffrey affirms this Arya calls him a liar after the king has listened to Arya's side of the story, Lord Renly begins snickering, love Renly, and asks Joffrey how a skinny nine-year-old managed to disarm him with a broom handle. When Joffrey recounts a different Good question. Yeah, yeah. When Joffrey recounts a very different story, King Robert is exasperated. Ned reminds the king that Sansa was also present and has Sansa brought to him brought in to testify. However, Sansa, torn between her family and her love for Joffrey, claims she doesn't remember. This infuriates Arya, who lunges at Sansa. Cersei uses this as an example of how wild Arya is and insists she wants Arya punished. King Robert, even more exasperated, orders Ned to discipline Arya while he will discipline Joffrey. Unsatisfied, Cersei demands that Nymeria be killed and offers 100 gold dragons for her pelt. However, since Nymeria has disappeared, Cersei demands the skin of the other dire wolf. When Ned protests, Robert only responds that a dire wolf is not a pet and that the girl can be happier with a dog. Sansa, who has her father's brain, finally realizes that they are talking about her dire wolf and goes crying to Ned. In a final attempt to save her dire wolf, Ned insists that the king execute the wolf himself, but Robert only walks away. Ned refuses to let Illyn Payne do the task. When Cersei voices suspicion about Ned's intentions, Ned replies that the dire wolf is from the north and deserves better than a butcher. With Sansa's cries in his ears, Ned goes to Lady. As he sits beside the wolf, waiting for his sword, Ned considers the names his children chose for their wolves and finds that Sansa chose a good name for her well-behaved wolf. After the deed is done, Ned commands four guardsmen to return Lady's body to Winterfell for burial, insisting that Cersei will never have her skin. As he is returning, Sandor Clegane and his riders come back from the hunt. 
Clegane states that while they didn't find Arya, they did find her pet and drops a corpse at Ned's feet. As he bends to uncover the corpse, Ned wonders how he will tell Arya. However, rather than Nymeria, the body turns out to be Arya's friend Micah, cut down from horseback. When Ned states that Clegane ran the boy down, the burned man responds, he ran, but not very fast. And hatred of children continues. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I find it interesting that, uh, if you think about it, if Sansa had just sided with Arya on this, the wolves might have lived fine. I mean, I don't know if Lady still would have made it out of this because Cersei's crazy, but like Robert might have been like, well, it wasn't the wolf's fault. Mm. Joffrey was attacking her. Yeah. And the wolf was protecting her and everything. Yeah. If Ned was a little bit smarter or Arya was a little bit smarter, it might have gone down a totally different way. Also, I find it interesting that he sent four men to take the wolf's body back. Like we were just talking about what the size of them could possibly be. Yeah. That I, I guess if it takes four men to carry it or whatever. Yeah, it's got to be pretty big. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, also that just could be because he doesn't want, you know, them to get into a squabble with anybody because, you know, once the Lannisters hear that they took the pelt back, you don't think the Lannisters are going to, like, send some people after true. them to go get it? Could be very true. You're right. And also, maybe Ned was like, why did I bring so many people with me? <laughs> <laughs> maybe Ned was like, maybe I did bring too many. Yeah. I just want to state this next chapter, chapter 17, brand three. It's techn- It's not in the show at all, really. Um, no it's really not it's kind of its own yeah only the the very end of the chapter is in the is in the show so it's not exactly a one-to-one adaptation but yeah I didn't even know where we were putting this because I was like this could easily be the beginning of next yeah as well as being the end of this because it's kind of in a weird location and in the future there's also going to be a Sansa chapter I don't remember it specifically which one, but that chapter gets divided up between two episodes. And I was like, oh, do I put this in here? I, I just decided to put it in the latter half, like in the yeah. second episode, because um, the more important things happen in the second episode, I think. But so let's dive into it. Chapter 17, Brand 3. Our point of view character is Brand Stark, and the location is Winterfell. Brand is dreaming of falling. It seems that he has been falling for years, but I never fall, he remembers as he falls. As the grounds get closer, Bran believes that he will wake up the instant before he hits the ground, like he always has before. And if you don't, asks a voice, a crow is with him, telling him to fly. Bran insists that he doesn't know how to fly. The crow asks him if he has ever tried. Bran then asks the crow if he is really a crow and the crow asks Bran if he is really falling. Bran begins to cry, but the crow insists that the answer is flying, not crying, and that flying is easy. When Bran mentions that the crow has wings, the crow says maybe Bran does too. When Bran searches himself for wings, the crow tells him that there are different kinds of wings. Bran asks the crow what he is doing, and the crow responds that he is teaching Bran to fly. When Bran looks down again, he can see the whole realm and everything in it. 
In Winterfell, he sees the inhabitants going about their work and sees the heart tree in the godswood looking back at him. Bran sees his mother contemplating a bloodstained knife aboard a ship sailing on the bite, and his father pleading with the king near the trident, which you would think takes it, this takes place after the exact last chapter, but I imagine Ned was pleading with Robert a a lot of times throughout their time together. He sees Sansa crying herself to sleep and Arya holding her secrets in her heart. All around his family, Bran sees shadows. One is dark as ash with the terrible face of a hound and another one in armor as golden and beautiful as the sun. Over them all looms a giant armored one in stone, but with only darkness and black blood beneath its visors. In the far east, Bran sees dragons stirring in the fabled Shadowlands. Bran turns north to the wall where he sees Jon sleeping alone and growing cold and hard. Then Bran looks beyond the wall and beyond the curtain of light at the edge of the world into what he calls the heart of winter. What he sees there makes him cry. The crow tells Bran that now he knows he must live because winter is coming. Bran realizes that the crow has a third eye full of terrible knowledge. Bran can see spires of ice rising up to impale him and the bodies of a thousand dreamers before him. The three-eyed crow tells Bran that he must choose, fly or die. Bran spreads his arms and flies. The crow reacts by pecking at Bran's face between his eyes, blinding him. Suddenly, the crow dissolves into a serving woman with long black hair. Bran realizes he is in Winterfell. The serving woman drops her basin and runs down the steps, shouting, he is awake. Bran touches the burning space between his eyes where he was pecked but cannot feel a thing. Bran's dire wolf jumps up onto his legs, but Bran cannot feel it. When his brother Rob arrives, Bran looks up at him calmly and says, his name is Summer. Whew. What a chapter. Yeah, it is quite the chapter. Yeah. I mean, we got the others in the prologue, but this is the first thing that's like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, this is like a very magical chapter. Of yeah. Like- this is rain, the magic, mm-hmm. the not so of earth kind of thing going on. Like this is unnatural, whatever is happening here. Mm-hmm. And it's it, also not a normal dream. You can tell that it's not normal. Right. And it brings in, it does bring in like one of the things that I love that George does so well is while this is fantasy and everything, he does bring in ideas from our world like the whole third eye, opening your third eye for knowledge and everything. Yeah. That That's a concept from our world. But yeah, this is, this is, I think the first chapter that makes you go, what the hell is this? <laughs> like what, what's happening? Yeah. Because I think even when we get inklings of other things, like you mentioned, like earlier when Tyrion was talking about the dragons and he was like, yeah, I felt like the dragons liked being touched by the fire when I lifted it near them. Like, yeah, that's some weird mystical feelings, but it's not the way this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is happening in like everything else that's kind of weird. Like I said, we get the others in the prologue, but that's something that you could just be like, they're weird looking people like and they have some ice weapon, some crystal yeah. weapon. And but this is the first thing in real time with the story that is unique that has the fantasy element the 
as I said, what the heck is going on here thing going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was the first chapter I remember when I first read it, not really understanding it. Like, oh, I agree. Yeah. Like, it's not a chapter I think you're meant to understand at all. You're kind of supposed to go into be that. I'm like, what did I just read? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, like because uh, your logical brain is trying to be like, how how long is he falling for? But it's a dream. Like, dreams don't make sense. And it also makes me think. It just, I'll say it. Uh, oh, not even a spoiler. There's a Tyrion chapter in a much later book that something happens that also when I read it was like what the heck is going on here like uh when he's sailing somewhere and he sails past mm-hmm. a thing and, okay I didn't want to get too much spoiler yeah. in yeah, okay but yeah that's that's really all I have to say about uh this chapter and this uh this episode I guess unless there's yeah some... I feel like this chapter is much more we could talk about this chapter and come back to it is more of what this chapter is more so than like content to talk about at the moment yeah i guess the only other thing is when he brand sees the dragon stirring in the shadow bands that's kind of hmm because the if he was to see dragons stirring they should be invased a thrack like maybe george didn't have the whole map of essos mapped out yet at this moment yeah but the shadow lands are much much farther to the east than vaste thrack is so I don't know. Yeah, interesting. Unless there's even more dragons that we haven't seen. Some people theorize that there's every theory you can come up with. There are people that theorize that because Bran has a dream about flying, that he's part Targaryen. And I'm like, how? <laughs> we know his father and mother's ancestral line. Yeah. Uh, and there were no Tullys and no Starks that married Targaryens. So yeah it doesn't really work yeah but anyway anything else you'd like to discuss sir no i think we got it all okay well then this has been the once again podcast any questions comments or critiques can be addressed to our email at onceagainpod at gmail.com follow us on our social media accounts once again pod all one word on twitter and instagram if you'd like to contribute to the podcast we have several tiers available on patreon.com slash onceagainpod As always, a like, follow, or share would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. And remember, we will entertain you. We will always entertain you.